Our Father in heaven, we come here um, this morning. We belong to you. We belong to you because you purchased us with the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus was shed because he was willing to empty himself of his essence and godness to take on flesh, to become a man, a servant, and to die on a cross for us. And out of that, you have purchased us. You have brought through that, what sounds like a horror story, you have brought to us hope. A hope that is different from anything the world has ever seen. A hope that is real, that is genuine. A hope that goes beyond our, even our imaginations, our wishful thinking, and whatever we might try to define. A hope that includes things we've not yet seen nor experienced, but we accept because we believe in you. So Father, I ask that you would help us to open our hearts, to hear your word, and to receive afresh only what your truth can provide for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Palestine was not a happy place at the time when the big calendar turned from B.C. to A.D. Palestine was a horrible place. It was a place of hopelessness. They were ruled from, they were, they were ruled by the tyrant empire of Rome. And whatever self-governing that they were allowed was under the strict supervision of Rome. And it had tremendous limits placed upon it. On top of that, those who were in charge were not the kind of people that you would trust. The Hasmoneans had produced uh, these, these wonderful, wonderful bit of royalty that we refer to as the Herods. Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, Herod the Tetrarch. The Herods were horrible. They were worse than anything. If there was Fox News in those days, all they would talk about was Herods. That's kind of funny. Come on. <clears throat> the Herods were corrupt. They were selfish. They clung to whatever power they could have, pretending that they were in charge. The Herods, Herod the Great, built a new temple. Bigger than any temple that had stood in Jerusalem since David's vision was fulfilled by his son Solomon. But the temple that Solomon built was noted for the day that the glory of the Lord descended upon it and filled the temple. There's no record of that ever happening in Herod's temple. It had become a den of thieves, as described by Jesus. It had become just another seat of power 
it had become a, a, a center for a, a corrupt judiciary called the Sanhedrin. And it was overseen by the Sadducees or the Levites or the priests who had just become a professional ruling clergy class. Spirituality was dead. People who, who, people who advanced materially in any way, shape, or form only did it by cheating or by getting along with the people who were in charge, and it usually meant compromise. The people were walking in darkness, the darkness of hopelessness. There's no reason to believe the heavens had been silent for centuries. No prophet had spoken for hundreds of years. What was going on in the temple was a travesty, a shell, a form without substance. No spirituality, no, no clear ruling with the law of God. Brothers devouring brothers. Foreigners, they'd been under foreign rule for years. The Romans were just the latest in a series. It was a nation in decline. Closer to their own end than they realized. They, they, they were less than 100 years away from the devastation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that happened in A.D. 70. But the Levites and the priests, they did the holy days. They would do the New Year, the Day of Atonement. They would do the rituals that went with the booths and with the Pentecost, and with the Passover. They went through the motions. They did their thing. And they're in the temple. They're in the temple. Was an 86-year-old woman named Anna. Anna had, had been widowed in the seventh year of her marriage. Apparently did not have family to take care of her. All alone, it seems. I mean, everything we know about Anna is, is like, uh, I don't know, about, uh, well, exactly in my English translation, 88 words. 88 little words. It's all we know about Anna. <clears throat> and, uh, She was waiting. And she served in the temple. We're not even sure exactly what that meant. Where it says she was serving, the word can be translated serve, like do stuff for people, or it could be translated worship. 
it's uh, it's it's just a vague word. <clears throat> but she was there every day. She was there every day. You see, Anna, I believe, believed the prophecies. I've been told, but I've yet to find sources from that time, but I've, I've been told that there was an atmosphere of expectancy among the people in Palestine, the expectation that Messiah would be there soon. <clears throat> that, that expectation sort of rose and fell through the history of Israel. They, when things got really bad, they would start looking for a Messiah to come and save them. And then things would get better, and I think they sort of forgot about it. it it's sort of like the game that we play with the church, that every time things get really bad, we know Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And then things quiet down a little bit, and we go, phew, guess not this time. <clears throat> but Anna wasn't the only one. There was another guy who, I think we can infer, it does not say that he was an old man, but, it, but by some of the things that he says, I think, we can, I think we can infer that he also was old. <clears throat> I like to think that he's old. I like the idea that Simeon and Anna were both old. And the older I get, the more I like the idea. <clears throat> Luke writes that, uh, that when eight days had passed, that is, since the birth of Jesus, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, that means that there were eight days until his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the wombs. So we know Mary knew that, in case you were wondering, Mary, did you know his name? She did. His name is Jesus because he would be the savior of his people. <clears throat> that probably took place in Bethlehem. It would be a family affair around the house. Um, you know, I'm kind of one of those guys who could ruin Christmas for everybody if we really looked at the historical setting and, and uh, the, the stable and the inn and all that business is, has sort of been painted into a certain image that we have today, and um, we'll leave that alone. So he, he was born and laid in a manger, and uh, I don't think they were all alone. It was the family home is Bethlehem. That's where the, their family was from. There were relatives there, I'm sure. I bet you they were staying with relatives. And so, like you do, on the eighth day, the child is circumcised and named a son of the covenant, of the old covenant. It's the sign of the covenant. Well, then, some more days went by, and the, the days for her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, and they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Bethlehem wasn't very far from Jerusalem, so they traveled just those, just those few miles to Jerusalem. Now, that... that What's going on there refers back to the 12th chapter of Leviticus, and you can study that on your own, but 
They pretty well describe what happens in, in Leviticus. A woman who's given birth is, uh, is, is declared unclean, and the rules that apply to her during that time is uh, just like the rules that apply to her in her monthly cycle. And so she's, she's considered unclean until she comes to this end, the purification that is the end of the 8 plus 33 days, the, the 40 days after the birth. <clears throat> so she came to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. It's the firstborn. That's what you do. That's the law in Leviticus given by Moses, through Moses. And then to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. And then it says, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That tells us something about the economics of Mary and Joseph's household because the law calls for a lamb and a pigeon or turtle dove. Unless you can't afford the lamb, then you can bring two turtle doves. It says here they brought two turtle doves. So clearly, they were of lower income, lower, more of a poverty offering. So they come and present him. Now, there's a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, we could pass right over this and forget the fact that not everybody got the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. You realize that? It was not available to everybody until the day of Pentecost after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit came and the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, took place on that day. That was a shift in the cosmos. That was God who, who seemed, he wasn't, but seemed to his people to be far off and someone would have to cry out and reach to and beg for mercy. It, it, He's, he had come in the flesh, and now he comes in the spirit, and he says, he, he says, I'm going to dwell among you for a little bit, and then Jesus leaves, and he comes back in the Holy Spirit, and he actually takes up residence within his people, individually and collectively. Understand, that was cosmic. It was huge. It was a shift in reality. It was the beginning of the end, and that's why it's, it's couched in those terms in Acts 2 where it talks about the sun is darkened and the moon turned to blood and fire and smoke and earthquakes and all of this stuff. And I, I don't necessarily think that they're looking around Jerusalem, seeing the walls, you know, shaking. It is just that huge. It's the end times. I know when the end times began. Began on the day of Pentecost, A.D. 33-ish. But now, this guy Simeon has the Holy Spirit. We have people that have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, usually prophets and leaders, and sometimes they would come and do a thing and then seem to be not there then. Not that permanent residence of God with us. 
Emmanuel, the very creator of the universe and his son taking up residence within us as Jesus promised on the night that he was betrayed. He said, we're going to come and make our abode with you. We're going to live in you. You're going to be our home. You're going to be our house. And we're going to be your house. You're going to live in us and we're going to live in you. Whole new thing. Simeon had a taste of that because the Holy Spirit was upon him. He heard from God in a special way. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And that's just Greek for Messiah. The Lord's Messiah. Messiah Adonai, the Lord's Messiah. Tell you what, Simeon, you're not going to die till you see him. Well, that's kind of a special promise, I'd say. And Simeon, believed the Holy Spirit. He believed that this was true and he believed this promise. In verse 27 there in Luke 2, it says, and he came by the Spirit into the temple. I don't think he floated in. I think it means he was directed by the Spirit. The Spirit says, get to the temple. He didn't hang around the temple apparently like Anna did, but the Spirit told him to get to the temple. So he got to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms. That must have been a moment. Here's Mary with her baby, and this old man she's never seen before grabs her baby. Think, Think about it. Think about the drama of the moment. And he looks at this baby... And he blesses God. And he says, Oh, now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace. Simeon, I've seen what you promised. There's nothing left for me. Just, let's just, I'm, I'm coming, Lord. I'm being released. That also makes me think he was pretty old because as you get older, you get more impatient for that, I think. I'm not that old yet. I'm being pretty patient myself. He says, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. His father and his mother were amazed, I think so, at the things which were being said about him. Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He heard from God, he had discernment. He had discernment to, to, to get to the temple when instructed. He had discernment to know what he was seeing when he saw. He had discernment 
to speak the truth that God was giving him through the Holy Spirit about this child. And, and the, the, even the dark shadow in the prophecy that a sword would pierce the mother's soul. So we have a couple hundred words describing Simeon. Not quite 90 words about Anna, who was a prophetess. That's what it says in verse 36, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, had lived with her husband seven years after marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. I said 86 a minute ago, well, 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up to them and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, she was a prophetess. Simeon made his statement, but Anna grabbed everybody she could find to tell what she had seen. She was one who was going to speak the truth. She was a prophetess. It was, that was who she was. That's what she was. And that's what we know about them. But I do know this. You know, um, update for those of you who were here for my birthday bash a few months ago, especially for those of you who contributed towards my big gift, you know that I have always, all my life, from when I was um, not old enough to know better to even today, which apparently I still am not, I've wanted to jump out of an airplane and so an offering was taken up. Everybody got behind that one real quick. <laughs> an offering was taken up to provide for me the opportunity to uh, experience parachute jump. Update, I haven't done that yet. It's been a busy, busy fall. This is not reluctance, I promise you. Um, and uh, uh, sometime after the first of the year, we're, we're going to get, I was busy, I went to Japan, you know, all that stuff. So... <clears throat> I'm still very excited about it. And of course, when, uh, when it was revealed that I would like to do that, you know what the question was that people asked me? What do you suppose was the, was the number one question people asked me about jumping out of an airplane? <laughs> yeah, why? Okay, that's a number. Maybe that was number one. <laughs> My dad used to say, who would jump out of a perfectly good airplane? And... No, that people would ask me if that was on my bucket list. You know, bucket list? Everybody knows the term? Yes, no? Okay, all right, all right. The, the term bucket list is the list of things that you want to do before you kick the bucket. That's where the term comes from. I said, no, because I don't have a bucket list. I have things that would be nice if I get to do them. If I don't, it's not a big deal. And I've always wanted to do that. And uh, so if you want to call it a bucket list, fine. I have one thing on my bucket list. <clears throat> That's one of the things I think with Simeon and Anna, that each of them had one item on their bucket lists. And it was this. I want to see it. You've promised it. You've promised it since, since creation. You've promised it since you told Eve that her seed was going to crush the serpent's head. 
You've promised it through the prophets. And Isaiah described the suffering servant. Jeremiah talked about the hope that was coming. And each of the prophets, would, would, they would tell the horrible things that were going on in Israel and the consequences of their sin and faithlessness. But it always came back around to this, that there is hope, that there is one coming, that God is not going to leave you where you are because he promised. And they had hope. They had hope. Now, hope's an interesting concept, especially today. (laughs) How are you doing with hope these days? I mean really. Because in my lifetime, I have never seen the concerted assault on the hope of a people that we have been enduring for now decades. There is no hope. It's being stripped away. It's being pummeled. It's being clawed at. It's being scraped away a little at a time. There is no hope. You thought there was hope. I thought there was going to be hope in this political leader. Well, oh boy, that was a false hope. And I thought there was going to be hope in this strategy. But oh boy, that was a false hope. And I had hope that my family was going to go this way. But uh uh-oh, nope, nothing there. And I had hope that this was going to happen. I had hope for that. I had hope to be here by now. I had hope that this would happen at this point. I was hoping that I would have this much in my bank account, this many acres in my estate. I thought I thought I was going to have all of this stuff. I had hopes for all of this stuff and the hopes were dashed and now I'm feeling hopeless. The, the news media and those who would like to have a tyrannical hold on you are trying to take away whatever little bit, few flakes of hope that are left in you. Because the hopeless will turn to the ones who seem to be powerful because they're looking for something to put their hope in. And we are living in a time of hopelessness. How are you doing personally? You know, on your meter of, of I'm extremely hopeful to I have lost all hope. Where's your needle right now? Do you experience, have you lost hope? I, I think some of you have. It might be a little bit, it might be a few ounces, it might be pounds, it might be a ton of hope. But I think that, that, that we are experiencing a dearth of hope, even within the church. With the, I was hoping for this, I was hoping for that. And, and do you feel it? Do you sense it? Am I just a, am I just a, a gloomy gus up here, a pessimist who who thinks that? I, I feel it's everywhere. Where you know what are some of the things that people have lost hope in? Just just call it out. You can you can be personal. You can be general. You can make a social comment. What are you seeing where we're losing hope today? In the country, you know, I am at the point now. The first time in my life where unless God intervenes, I, 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 I can't picture that there will be anything that resembles a constitutional United States of America within some, some span of time in the near future. I've lost hope in that. What else? Life? Hope in life? 
How about, how about people? What else? Keep, keep, dig around. What have you heard? It doesn't have to be your own, but people that you've seen who just, just don't seem to have any hope anymore in something. The next generation. Oh, my goodness. We could go on and on about, well, pick a, pick a letter. You know, we baby boomers are the last good generation, right? So the rest of you, you're in trouble. We don't have any hope for you. Facetious, joking. JK. All right. <clears throat> what else? Trauma? Hope for healthiness. Hope for wholeness. Yeah, yeah. What is the single, from, from, from the worst of PTSD to the doldrums, and that whole range of, of depression, whether, whether clinical or just bad day, what is the single characteristic that flows throughout the whole concept of depression? There's one characteristic that never changes. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Been there. I had a bout with depression back in the 90s. I, I was paralyzed. I couldn't move forward. Had no hope. I had disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And I found myself not even realizing because it was kind of a slow slide to the point where I had no motivation. I had no joy. I had, I had no sense of well-being, no healthiness, no wholeness. I was without hope. Well, you know, I'd, I'd, I, had lost, I had lost two jobs like that, boom, boom. I'd, I'd taken one I shouldn't take because of the one I'd lost the one. I had a kid in college and a kid in high school. I had a mortgage that I never should have gotten into in the first place. <clears throat> I was heading towards bankruptcy. There was nothing left for me to put my hope in. I know, I know what it feels like to be hopeless. Been hopeless. Grief that Grief that paralyzes us is a, is a grief that is lacking in hope or a hope that doesn't, doesn't do anything for us. What else? What, what else have we lost hope in? I mean, when we say the country, we could go to go all over the place in government, the administrative state and everything that just is making us crazy today. <clears throat> well... There, there's, there's been a tremendous loss of hope in the church. I mean, we, we, have, a word, we have a word for younger people, ex-evangelical, right? 
So I never truly was an evangelical, so I can't be an ex-evangelical, and that's a whole other discussion. But uh, ask me about it later if you want to know what I mean by that, before you, like, take me out and tie me to a pole and start the branches on fire. <clears throat> you see, since, since at least the third century B.C., Theocritus said famously, Dum spiro spero. <laughs> He spoke Latin. Um, that means where there is life, there is hope. He wrote, while there's life, there's hope, and only the dead have none. And by the time of, uh, uh, right before the time of Christ, the century before Christ, Cicero used the phrase. So it become kind of a common, common phrase by then, where there's life, there's hope. But I think what I find if I look into Scripture, that an argument can be made that the opposite is actually true. Where there's hope, there's life. Where there's hopelessness, there's death. The death of your soul, the death of your heart, and even the death of your person. There is no greater hopeless act than for a person to take his own life. But we do it in bits and pieces sometimes, Without hope, we end up on paths of self-destruction. We, we kill ourselves by a thousand cuts. We hinder ourselves. We, we, we actually become our worst enemy. We actually interrupt those things that could be bringing us hope. Because we don't have hope. We've lost hope. But Anna and Simeon, they each had a one-item bucket list. And it had to do with the hope of seeing salvation in the Messiah. Hope's an important word in the Bible. The English translation, hope, appears in, in the New American Standard. It appears exactly 70 times in the Old Testament and 70 times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's just one word um, in two forms, a verb and a noun. In the, in the Hebrew, there's about four words that get translated hope. In, in English. And, and the words in the, in the Old Testament mostly focus on, several, on, these, on these few characteristics. Hope is something not realized, and it's good. And you have reasonable expectation for it. Those are the three things that stay there. And, and some of the words focus on the object, what you have your hope in, put your hope in God, okay? That's, that he is our hope, but, but what we are doing is hoping. You see, it's, it's, it's both what we do and the object of our hope. Um, we're told not to put our hope in, tro in horses and chariots, um, not to put our hope in stuff, in... Uh, you know, stop hoping in thievery, the psalmist writes in one place. You know, one of the greatest users of the word hope in the Old Testament, of all people, it appears in the book of Job a very large number of times. In the midst of, in the midst of that storm, he found himself, the word hope comes up over and over again. We live in the time of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. <clears throat> and... And Paul uses the word hope a lot. 
In Romans 5, he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. He says, we exult in tribulation, which produces genuine worth, which produces hope, and the hope will not disappoint. Now, understand this, that, that hope is not contingent upon what's going on around you. He says, we exult. That's, that's almost like brag. It's, a, it's sometimes translated boast. We boast in our hope. So we boast in our tribulation. I do what now? That we, we boast in our tribulation because it, it is in the tribulation that we develop the perseverance that gives rise to hope, you see? And <clears throat> he goes on in the eighth chapter. He says, in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he already has? If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. <coughs> That's the challenge. One of the challenges of, of, of discipleship is that we have hope, but that also means that we don't have everything yet. Recognize that we don't have everything yet, that all that he has promised for us yet lies ahead of us. <coughs> it's not hope if you already have it. I hope I have a cell phone. No, I have a cell phone. I hope it works when I press the button. Ha, huh, it did. But it's silly to hope until I press. After I press the button, I guess I hope it comes on. It's already on. Makes no sense. Understand that hope has a over-the-horizon element to it. Okay? So, <clears throat> he goes on in Romans 15, of course, famous. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait, what? It is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be obedient in hope. Here's the interesting thing about hope. We see some things in, in Scripture that clearly come upon us. Or we talk about fruit of the Spirit. We have the Spirit, and the, it produces this fruit that, that lets us recognize that we're walking by the Spirit, not by the flesh. But hope, over and over again, there is a call to hope like there's a call to love. It's an action. It's something that you do. Hoping is something that, that you do. He talks, about, he talks about grasping for the hope, clinging to the hope, knowing about the hope. <laughs> it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it is... It's part of what he's talking about in Ephesians 1 when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. In the most hopeless situation, in the worst of your times, when everything is going wrong, when every person is going wrong, when people are hurting you, when they're attacking you, when they're neglecting you, when they're ignoring you, when everything is not as what you were expecting and you are disappointed beyond description that the, down at the bottom 
There's a question, are you going to let go of the hope or are you going to cling to the hope? It's, it, it's not listed as something he just gifts us with. He gifts us with the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength. It's like, it's like um, the one that bugs me the most. Uh, fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. I want to say, all right, Lord, you don't take over. I said, no, self-control. I'm giving you the power to control yourself. Ah, oh, do I have to? Sure, it'd be easier if you could just like, you know, you know, hook me up like Pinocchio. Then I could just walk in the Spirit. Like a big dummy on a string. That's not what he wants. He wants our hearts. He, he wants us. He wants us with the power that he gives us. And the, that Holy Spirit is what allows us to overcome the flesh and, and the works of the flesh. And that's called self-control. So he calls us to hope, just as he calls us to love. You don't fall in and out of love. Not agape love, you don't. You do it. You do agape. Or you don't. That's... We, 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 our, our culture doesn't understand what love means. We think it's a feeling. It's not. Can't command feelings. You know? Men, have you ever told the woman that you love the most in all the world, have you ever told her, cheer up, and it worked? Ever? Ever? No. Never in the history of men and women has the man grinning and saying, cheer up. Has that ever cheered the woman up? Ever. And it doesn't work for men either. Because you can't, you can't command how someone feels. Why would God command us to love if it's a feeling? Ooh. I don't like the phrase in love. I don't like the phrase fall in love because if I fall into something, I might fall out of it. And that sounds like somebody else's fault. <laughs> either love or you don't. You either hope or you don't. Anna and Simeon believed what they were told. They believed what they had read and they had hope because they they did, it doesn't say they had hope and get rid of Rome. It doesn't say that they had hope that the, that the, um, that the uh, corrupt priesthood would become reformed or even replaced. It doesn't say that they had hope for any of the things that, that sounded good. Over and over again. Over and over again. The old covenant calls us to put our hope in God. And that's how you have hope that Paul talks about that will not disappoint. It has to do with where you place your hope. Now, you've heard me talk about hope and trying to understand what it means. I'm going to say it again because I'm an old guy and we're allowed to repeat ourselves. We get the idea of hoping confused with the idea of wishing. We just get totally confused. Well, isn't it the same thing? I mean, you know, that's like you, you want something to happen, you expect it to happen, and wishing for it. 
No, there's a huge difference, gigantic difference. And if you approach hope like a wish, you are going to be disappointed because that ain't hope. The difference between hoping and wishing has to do with the reasonable expectation that it will be fulfilled. A wish is nothing. My favorite way to describe it is like this. I hope to get paid next Friday. I wish it was going to be twice as much. See the difference? I hope that Tim gets done by noon. I wish he would get done by noon. We hope that we'll get out of here today. It's the difference between it's the difference between expectation and expectancy. We talk about that all the time, don't we? When I have an expectation, then I'm going to define the thing that I'm hoping for or wishing for. And I can reverse engineer and make it sound like God's will all day long because I want it so bad. But my, my, hope, is never, my hope is never in the blessing. My hope is in the blesser. My faith is not, in the, is not in the fulfillment of the desire. My faith is in the one who will always do what's best for me and for you and for both of us when we come together. And it's an incredible, amazing exercise of the wisdom and power of an almighty God who can bring two very different people together in the same circumstances and and each with their own individual needs that don't even look like the other, fulfill the needs of everybody involved as we seek him. We seek him. Because that's the whole point. Are you hopeful or not? How's your hope how's your hopometer? How's your hopometer? <clears throat> you see, hope. Hope that's failing is hope that has little substance. It's like concrete without the rebar. You get a tremor and the wall falls down. What's the rebar? What's What's the substance of hope? The Hebrew writer told us. What does Hebrews 11.1 say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. If your hope is weak, it might be a faith problem. And that's a question that you need to spend some time with. I was assailed this whole this this whole message started this whole message started with a with a text. I have a few people who love to send me a text that's maybe like two sentences and answering it would require about four screens of response. I think they do it just to see if I'll do it. And I can't help it. I have this sort of scripture Tourette's thing. I can't stop myself. I've got to give up. And the question was how would you describe biblical hope? I went, whoa. It's a little sentence. How many words, you know? <laughs> but the guy that sent me the text, 
No, you didn't do this. No, the guy, the, the guy that sent me this text could have a master's degree in provocative questions. He would, he would have a, a, a certificate to hang on the wall. I'm not going to tell you who this Brent Wildman is, but it is this guy <laughs> who can do it. In fact, he tells people, if you want to get an opinion out of Tim, because he, he's reluctant to give his answer, his opinion, where he stands on an issue, he says, I know how to, I know how to get him to say it. And he tells people how to do that. It makes me crazy. <clears throat> Faith is the substance. Hupostasis. It's the stuff of things hoped for. The conviction of things not Hopeless? It's a substance problem. It's not substance abuse. It's this lack of substance. <sighs> Faith isn't faith if it only nods assent to certain facts or claims. We know demons do that, right? And they're, they're smart enough to be scared. <laughs> well, a lot of times we don't, even, we don't even have the fear that the demons have. Faith, if it's, if, it's, if it's not dead, faith produces action, obedience, surrender. Um, you know, we could build a little bridge across here, like four chairs on each side and then uh, some concrete blocks on each of the chairs and a nice sturdy plank across there and, and uh, ask you to walk across it. You look at it. Uh, yeah, do, you think, do you think it would hold you? Yeah, I think it would hold me. Well, get up there and walk across it. I am not getting up there. Well, then you don't really believe it, do you? Um, it's, the same, it's the same thing. We, we give an assent and then it, it makes no difference in our lives. That ain't faith. One of the saddest, saddest verses in all the New Testament is on the road to Emmaus when, when, when Clevis and his partner are walking along with their eyes cast down and shuffling through the dust in their sandals. And Jesus shows up and they don't recognize him. He asks them, what's going on? They said, you want a person who's been in Jerusalem doesn't know what's going on? He says, what things? What? What? And they tell him about this guy from Nazareth and says, we thought he was, we, th we thought he was the one. We had hoped. We had hoped. Implied, but we don't have hope anymore. <laughs> We're talking to the hope of Israel himself. It scares me when I meet people who have no hope because I know that they're, that they're sliding towards the abyss, the pit. And there's bad things in the pit up to and including death itself. You know, that the Hebrew writer, <laughs> Hebrew 6 is, has become this like this ground zero of arguing between uh, reform and non-reform theology is to, well, what is this? Is it once saved, always saved, or not once saved, always saved? And it was Calvin right, or was that Arminius guy right, or, or, or none of them right? Or, and we start arguing about that junk, and we miss the fact that, that, that Hebrew 6 is all about hope. <laughs> it's, not about, it's not about the falling away thing. <clears throat> yeah, there's some stuff in there, and it's got to be dealt with. But, 
but it, it, it says that he tells us to take hold of the hope set before us. He tells us this hope we have is an anchor for the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. A better hope through which we draw near to God. If I were from, an, if I were from another planet and I'd say, this is talking about an anchor. What's an anchor? What would you tell me? A heavy object holds something in place. What else do you know about anchors? Pardon me? <laughs> oh, you funny lady. <laughs> An anchor man. Ships, we see them in, that's where we see them the most probably is, is maritime use. And how do you use an anchor? They keep you in one place. How do they do that? You drop it. Okay? Drop my glasses. Not keeping me in one place. What do you do with an anchor? What do you mean? Okay, if you, okay, if you want to anchor aboard your wall, you nail it. Let's go back to the ship thing. We're going to have a chain on it. What are you going to do with that chain? There is an anchor on one end of the chain. What's on the other end of the chain? The boat. Or some strong guys. And, and it's made to hold, right? It's, it's a shape that's going to grab things and it's going to be heavy and it's going to sink to the bottom and it's going to hold you in place no matter what the storm is doing. <coughs> and how do you get an anchor to fail? Let go of it. If you let go of an anchor... It don't work. It won't hold you. Duh. <laughs> Sometimes the obvious is just too obvious. He says our hope is like an anchor. That means we got to hold on to it. Take hold of the hope set before us. It's an anchor for the soul. A hope of both sure and steadfast for the one which enters for the one which enters within the veil. What's that all about? The veil? Well, he talks about the veil elsewhere in Hebrews, doesn't he? Where, what's, what, when you enter in the veil, what are you going to find? The mercy seat, which is what? The Ark of the Covenant? In the, what's, what's that spot called? The Holy of Holies? Which was completely... At, at, at times, at times, literally, and then always symbolically, the presence of God. Our hope is the anchor that allows us access of, of remaining in the veil, in the holy place, dwelling in him and he in us. It's hope. It's hope. And the substance of your hope, what gives it, what, what gives it the strength and what, what makes it real is faith. And faith brings about obedience, surrender, and action. We call it saving faith. And it begins perhaps today for you. 
And it's renewed each day as you confess it over and over, as you surrender over and over, as you fall upon his mercies. And they're renewed every day. It's where we turn. We turn to him. In Luke, when, when the, the disciples are asking Jesus about what he just said about the coming destruction of the temple, and they can't even picture the destruction of the temple, that doesn't mean the destruction of the whole world. So they're asking, well, when, well, how are we gonna, when is this going to happen? How's, what are going to be the signs of this, the temple and, well, and of the coming of the Son of Man, for that matter? And it gets really confusing because he, he kind of goes back and forth between those two topics in his, in his response. But here's the one thing he says, and it's sure. He says, I'm going to read it to make sure. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's, it, is, it is perfectly appropriate when hope is being assailed, when they're stripping it from our grip, when they're trying to leave us hopeless, it is perfectly appropriate for us to stand up straight and to lift our eyes in hope that he's coming. Is he coming this year, next year, a hundred years from now? I don't know. Nobody does. Doesn't matter. He's coming. They didn't know when Messiah would show up the first time. Didn't matter. He came. And he brought salvation and life and hope for all of us. So how about you? This of all seasons should be a season of hope for us because the hope of Israel has come and a light to the Gentiles has come. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Comfort, comfort ye my people. All that was said about him is coming true. It came true, it's coming true, and it will come true. We are living in the time of fulfilled prophecy. We're living in the time of a completed covenant. We're living in the time of God with us, Emmanuel. Do not fear. I am with you. Don't fear. I am, Emmanuel, with you. That's our hope. Chuck, you got some music for me? I just want to call you. I want to call you to grasp this hope. To grasp this hope that is strengthened and given substance by your faith. But your faith can't be in the outcome that you're hoping for, that you're wishing for. Your faith is in the one who will provide, who has always provided. 
only. And so I'm going to ask them to do some music and I'm going to ask you to reflect on where you are. Are you hopeful? Not are you wishing upon a star? That's good for Jiminy Cricket, but it's not going to work for us. Our hope and faith is in him. The one who loves us, the one who saves us. Are you struggling? Would you like someone to pray with you? Brent, you can come up here. Anybody else that wants to be here to pray with folks who want, want to be prayed? I don't have anything else to say. Whatever it is that you've placed your hope in erroneously, give it up. Put your hope in Him. Trust Him. Trust Him for eternity. Trust Him with your life, with your family, everything that is. We are called to one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are called to one hope, Paul says. That's what brings us together.